Welcome to Ava Podcast, Abilities Beyond Life Expectations. My name is Luke Ace Fidelli. Step into my world. Welcome to Able Podcast. Today we have Philip Stevens. Philip had an accident at age 18, just months after his HSC. Now he has written a book about his life and adventures. You can truly say Philip has abilities beyond life expectations. And Philip, can you tell us about your book? As you said, had the accident when I was 18, which is just after the HSC. I did in January, just after a little bit. Trip up to Queensland with some friends just chasing the surf, but uh, and then came back looking for a job either to work or to go to uni or part time work in uni. And one of the days before I was going to start work, I did what I did every day whenever I could, and that was just go to the beach with my friends. And we were out surfing, I came in, sat on the sand, and in the end, we decided to go home. And I just said to a mate, Hang on a sec, I'll uh, run in and get the sand off. So I ran down the beach, dived in. Thought the water was deep enough and it wasn't my head on the bottom and instantaneously paralysed. And since then, yes, you're right, I've uh, done a lot of good stuff with a lot of support from my friends and family and the travel's probably been one of the big ones apart from work, which enabled all that. But all through that, people have been saying to me, hey, Phil, you've got to write a book. And it was after the trip to uh, Machu Picchu, which I guess we can talk about later, I uh, thought, okay, everybody's a bit interested in this. So I did and started the book and I had somebody sort of guiding me through it and I had no idea where it was going to go, but it, it covers my life as a child. It covers my whole life from childhood right through to the present, which so it covers a very happy childhood, a lot of the domestic issues associated with having an accident like this and then how I got on to go to uni with the support of my mother and then getting a job, the support of my friends, the attitude, always positive from my employer, which has been incredible. That was always done sort of fairly conciliatory between the two of us. If I wanted to do something, they were very open to the ideas, or if they asked me if I could do something, they never, if I said not really, they were just incredibly understanding and supportive of that. And uh, that's really how it's worked. I've just never been afraid to ask, sort of work on the philosophy that if you don't ask, they can't say yes, and same thing, and not be offended if they say no. And that's been my attitude with my friends as well. What else can be done to make life more bearable for paraplegic people? For me, the big thing is, um, I think, accessibility. And I really think accessibility means a lot of different things to different people. By that, I mean it depends on what type of injury or disability you have, like, you know, I'm quadriplegic, so I need some sort of accessible support where paraplegic guys probably need less because they're more independent. People that have disability walking or walking with a frame or a crutches or they need a different type of support. But for me, where I live, the big thing is ramps on and off it from a footpath down onto the road and then back again. Councils can put them in and they don't 
really meet the guidelines of I think it's about one in ten. So if you attempt to go up a ramp like that without any support, the wheelchair might go over backwards or sometimes the ramp ends up in a hole in the road. So then it just really renders the ramp useless. I know if I go out my front door and go to the end of my street, there is no ramp. I can't get from the footpath onto the road. So I need to go down somebody's driveway. You go down the driveway, but when you're coming back, it's got a bit of a, a step maybe or a lip, you know, two, three centimetres, which just makes the whole ride uh, rough or not as safe as it should be. Access to restaurants, similar story. Restaurants can be really, really helpful when they make more room at a table or prepared to take a walking before people when there's only three of you because you need a bit more room to get around the table or get under the table if you're in a wheelchair. But the access to the restaurant is sometimes an issue where it has a step that you can't get up. I understand that with a restaurant that's been around for a while, but when they renovate or a new restaurant moves into another one has been and closed down, they comply with all sorts of council guidelines to meet the guidelines of the interior of how the kitchen lays out, the tables, chairs, bathrooms, but they don't put a ramp in to just get you up that one step. And I find that a real, a real impediment to just getting around and hanging out with my friends doing what they want to do. But as I say, being quadriplegic, I usually have somebody with me and they can help me get up a small step. If you're walking with crutches or your walking's not that stable, getting up a step could be hard or easy depending on how many stairs there are or what sort of provisions have been made for you. Another biggie for me, of course, is um, I travel a lot and I find that it doesn't have to be an expensive hotel or an inexpensive hotel. They all have varying attitudes to what an accessible bathroom would be. That sometimes I'll say the bathroom's accessible for a wheelchair, but the, bar- the shower is in the bath. That just doesn't work. Other hotels are absolutely fantastic with the facilities they provide in the bathroom. Um, some go to crazy extremes where they'll have an enormous bathroom with a shower in the corner and a really tiny vanity. When there was it actually be plenty of room for a normal sized vanity, and thereby they could probably rent that room out to any able-bodied person, and they wouldn't really think there was anything different about the room. Similar goes for the bedding, I suppose. Uh, accessibility. Um, they say a room's accessible, but then they put a, a really nice, comfortable king-size bed in. But if you don't want to share with your carer or the friend that you're travelling with, they tell you they can put in a roll-away bed, but then there's no room for the wheelchair. So it's an interesting dilemma for a lot of people. But international standards would be, be great. Councils complying with their own guidelines on a regular basis would be even better. It really comes back to what people need, but I think there needs to be a consensus of what level of support or accessibility people are going to be or should be provided with in their own local government area is the, the term that everybody comes to mind right away. And that's just my first thoughts on it. It's all, it's all very varied, I think. And what is the gold standard for accessibility? What have some of the best wheelchair-accessible hotels, restaurants have you come across? Oh, look, the building I work in is pretty damn good. And I think it had a lot to do with when they renovated, they actually consulted me on what I needed to get into the building. And they took one ramp away. You could go out the front door, it was great, but then there was a set of stairs in front of you and they had a ramp right at the very left-hand end of the building. And they had taken the one away from the front of the building. And I said, why can't you put one at the right? So they did. And it was, it was awesome. You know, they, 
they actually consulted somebody that was going to use the facilities. That's something that a lot of architects or designers would take into account, and that's actually consult people that are going to use the facilities that they know they've got to do something, but they're not quite sure what they've got to do. A hotel I've stayed in in uh, Fiji a lot of times. They're one of those hotels that actually has double bed and a single bed, so that could be used for anybody. The bathroom is phenomenal, except it has a very small vanity, and there's plenty of room there for a large vanity. And again, you could let anybody could stay there and not realise that they were really staying in a room that was designed for a disabled person. But having said that, that same bathroom, as good as it is, it's been designed as a wet room, as people refer to it, but the tiles drain out the door. They don't drain towards the drain, which is a bit weird. They're happy to give you towels and mops to clean up the mess yourself. But those sorts of things need to be addressed. As soon as somebody mentions to them that there's an issue, they should spend the money and correct what was a um, construction fault in the first place. They're the sort of things that I consider and that make my life a whole lot easier. And I travel with a friend or the friend might be a carer. And whatever makes their life easier makes my life easier. And I'm sure if people are travelling on their own in a wheelchair, they're you know, less disabled than I am, they're probably on their own and it makes it even more difficult for them because they've got nobody to lend the assistance but they might need it unexpectedly. What are you most proud of? Oh, it's hard. Um, probably getting to work, either starting work or moving out and living independently from my family with only my carers to fall back on. And, uh, you know, finding a house that I could do that with. But that's all been enabled by having the money that I've been able to get through through working. There's no one thing because there have been so many, for me, major steps along the way. But it'd have to be uh, living independently or actually getting a job and holding it, keeping it for 38 years. Can you tell us about your stories? Yeah, well, like I was saying before, I was, when I was 18, I just had a... Uh, normal carefree lifestyle of an 18 year old guy living on the northern beaches in Sydney and then um, that was all just hanging out with friends but then I had the accident and while I was in hospital there for for the the six months that I was there my friends never far away they came and visited every day so I never lost contact with them and I helped that's I put that down to the reason I never got really too depressed in the very beginning and it's also why I pretty much straight from hospital, which was six months, starting in January, through the, out of hospital the second six months, planning to go to uni because I discovered very early on in the piece that I wanted to be able to live the same life that my friends were doing or that I would have done uh, had I not had the accident that was going to involve money. So I decided to go to uni, which I wanted to do beforehand anyway. My friends were going to uni, so I was just following a normal what I considered to be a normal life plan and from uni that we decided to do that over three years in conversation with the lecturers and student counsellor at, at the uni and then uh, it came time to apply for a job. I just went to the normal job on campus interviews. I never told anybody I was quadriplegic before I was getting there. They soon worked that out when I went into the meeting room and they saw me and I was in a hall, I mean in a wheelchair. And then uh, eventually I was offered two jobs which is really good for my ego, I guess. One was with the Reserve Bank and one was with MLC. Well, they were MLC Life in those days. And I was recommended that I go for the private enterprise. The Reserve Bank thought I was be more suited to that than going into the city every day. And it was logistically, MLC was closer to home. 
they had a car park and they had people there that could help get me in and out of the car every morning and every afternoon. And that's, I just followed that process all the way through. The idea was to have enough money to lead a normal lifestyle, but that led me into the ability to discover a, a, a love of travel and indulge in a hobby of uh, red wine. But I can't understate the importance of the support I got from my mothers, my sisters. Uh, my friends have been phenomenal all the way through and still are. And also I discovered an ability to, to manage people that I didn't know I had. So I've been able to employ carers uh, now through the NDIS, but I get to choose who I have when I have them and run an independent like that to have these guys supporting me, which they've been flexible enough to fit in with the varying hours that I need to be at work. If I needed to you know, stay at work till really late, they'd come and pick me up really late. If I wanted to leave it early, they'd come and pick me up earlier. So all that along the way has made my life as flexible and successful, I suppose, as, as it has been. Tell me about your travels, Phil, like the time when you went to Machu Picchu. How did your friends help you get there? Oh, God, that was... Um, well, I've done a lot of travelling and been to some crazy places before that. You know, it started off with a couple of weeks in Noosa with a friend and then I said to him probably a year later, I said, oh, do you want to go away again? And he said, yes, because I didn't know I could just ask anybody to learn all the personal care that goes along with it. And he said, well, let's go overseas, which blew me out of the water. I'd never contemplated overseas travel. And we had a couple of weeks in Vanuatu. And since then, I've been to quite a few countries. And one of my best carers and one of the guys I've travelled a lot with to a variety of countries had said, mate, you've got to go to Machu Picchu. Because he'd been and he thought I should go. And then I had a carer... Uh, an Argentinian carer, and he, we were just talking, and I said, look, Machu Picchu is really on my hit list. And he said, simply, let's do it. So another mate said he'd like to come too. So we worked that out, and then it's just the whole logistics of getting to Argentina. I wanted to go and visit my old carers that I'd had because I had a lot of Argentinian guys looking after me, still do. And it just actually were pretty... We got there to Machu Picchu and realised how stupid and unprepared we were. I'd organised the logistics of the, the plane flights, the train ride, finding appropriate hotels. But when we actually got to the gates and the entrance to Machu Picchu, we realised that we really hadn't planned it. We just knew we were going to do it. We had an amazing guide, a, a Peruvian guide who's, without him we probably couldn't have done it because the idea was that two guys would carry me, but we thought, we hadn't thought about who was going to carry the wheelchair. Uh, the guide did that. So they'd run ahead, they'd work out where they were going to put me down next, in the next flat area on the, stair the stairs. And they uh, came back with the two boys who picked me up. The guide would pick up the chair. He'd run past, catch up to us, run past us, put the chair down. The guys would put me in the chair, they'd have a bit of a rest. And then on we'd go again. And we did that for six hours. And I guess 80% of that six hours, I was in the arms of one guy carrying me all the way up. And we went the way everybody else goes, all the way you'd say normal people go, I guess, or able-bodied people. The guy in the very first place said, oh, we're gonna go this way where you can see the ruins in a distance. But my mate Choco said, no, we're gonna do the whole climb. 
And when we got to what I thought was the top, he said, no, this is not the top viewing platform. There's one more higher up. And the ranger said, well, you can't do that. That's too unsafe, too dangerous. And Jogo just said to this guy, look, we haven't come this far to stop, you know, 50 stairs short. So the boys picked me up and the guy got the chair and we went over these other rocks, which, you know, and there were rocks there. They're century old rocks that have been put in place to form a sort of a staircase. And we got to the very top and that was, that was just mind blowing. I couldn't believe it when we got there. It was just so inspiring. that so much support and applause, if you like, from the people, other people that were doing the climb. But it, uh, it was just an ama- amazing, emotional and physically exhausting day. And then we had to come back down again, of course. And that was where the danger really hit me. Because going up, you can see where you're going, but going down, you can't see the steps. Choco couldn't see the stairs because I was in his arms. And we had Marcos was just saying, you know, next step, next step, big step, little step. And without that teamwork, it would never, never have been done. And that's how my life's been. It's all been teamwork with my friends, my mother, my family. And as I was saying before, we've worked. It's been, uh, I've never done any of this by myself. I think that's a fairly important thing not to realise, to realise that you're going to do something professionally or socially with a disability like this that you just, you're not on your own. And I found that out fairly early on in the piece. Great stuff. And I guess the Incas didn't really have people in wheelchairs in mind when they built Machu Picchu, but that's an incredible story there. That is really cool. No, they didn't and neither did the Egyptians. These two guys took me to Egypt a couple of years later and they managed to get me up just into the entrance of the Great Pyramid. And you sit back on the sand and you look at these things, these massive, massive constructions, and you think, how the hell did they ever do this? And then these guys got me up to the top and you think, well, were the Egyptians as stupid as we were and just tried to get there? But whatever they did, it was incredible. And going there was another one of the highlights of my travel adventures, I think. They're really impressive. Are you into scuba diving? Yeah, I wasn't before my accident, but that came around by another ex-carer. He was American and got me to go and stay with him in Hawaii, which is where he was living with his wife and young family. And went over there and he said, oh, Phil, you're going uh, scuba diving. He was an instructor and his wife was a dive master. And I said, you've got to be joking. And he said, no, 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 I'm going to take you scuba diving. And I trusted this guy and... Yeah, I've been scuba diving in Hawaii a lot on the Barrier Reef and in Fiji and once in Micronesia. It's uh, being underwater. It's so much easier scuba diving for me than snorkeling. Because snorkeling, I don't have the lung capacity to blow water out of the um, snorkel. So it was just a matter of putting my trust in Mark's hands and away we went. And again, that's trusting people is another big step on living the life that I have. So what is the next on your true horizon? Well, the next thing on my horizon is I think like everybody else in the world is to wait for this COVID thing to go away or to get under control so we can travel and and go to interesting places. I've got a cousin in France who's just uh, bought a beautiful chateau. I want to go and visit that. I'm really keen to go and see more of the Greek islands and some of the countries like Malta. I'd like to go to Sardinia, and not equally, they're, they're the travel, they're the things that they hit on the top of their travel hit list, I guess. But apart from that, increase my uh, public speaking. I'd like to really get into that. 
and hopefully the book is a bit of a leg into that. Work is always interesting because part of the way through my career I volunteered to go and represent my boss in a meeting and he wasn't terribly interested in facilities management or employee benefits and I was so I just held my hand up and said look if you don't want to be involved I will so he said it's all yours and that was a bit of a career change for me so I really enjoy work. The next step of work will be once this COVID thing goes away when we all start getting back into the office. But that's going to be a really interesting experience and maybe some more challenges for me, which is always good. If you let me um, get back onto the travel for a second, it's something I'd recommend to anybody, but you've got to be prepared to meet the challenges along the way. I found that when a hotel answers the question, yeah, can I put a wheelchair under the shower or roll a wheelchair into the shower, you've really got to ask them half a dozen times if when they say yes, they really mean yes, because quite often I've got to a hotel and found that the shower is in the bathtub, which really doesn't work if you want to try and put a wheelchair under it. But in some cases, we have had to put a wheelchair in the shower, and my friends have to lift me from the bed and carry me in and put me on the chair in the shower. So the whole planning process of travelling is fairly daunting, but it's really, really well worth the effort once you get to these places. And my favourite destination would be Fiji for a real holiday. And if you hunt around there, you'll always find a hotel with the facilities that you need. But travelling more extensively uh, just requires more effort. And you, know, you need your friends to be there to support you, and they've got to be open-minded enough to take on the challenges that you don't expect. Is there anything you want to ask me? Like- yes. Oh, how did you get into doing podcasts. Oh, and- I'm, I'm at this guy right next to me, Dave. <laughs> I met him and we, he said, oh, I'm doing a podcast. Well, I wanted to do a podcast and he helped me with it. So he's like my mentor and podcasting. Yeah, so that's uh, just taking somebody's idea and running with it and trusting Dave, I guess, which is awesome. It's important to maintain those relationships and, and not say no when somebody gives you an idea that you might think is not quite your thing, and then um, you find out it's a lot of fun. And bastard me a lot. I'm kind of like a father figure to him. Ah, right. <laughs> yeah, you find that my carers often say that I'm their, their father, their son, and a friend, of course. Different roles depending on what we're tackling at the time. Where can we find you on any social medias? The main one at the moment is my website is iamphilipstevens.com. It's a great name because Philip's got one L in it and Stevens has got a PH. So I've always got to explain how this, what my name is, otherwise people spell it incorrectly. So it's IamPhilipStevens.com and the book is on there and the topics that I like to do speakings on there. The book's called My Lucky Break, which is a bit of a play on breaking my neck because I really have been lucky throughout my life with the support from friends, family, carers, work the university, the uh, attitude of the guys at work have just been phenomenal with their open-mindedness and their attitude to just simply supporting me in whatever I interested me along the, the finance trail. Well, Phil, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on this afternoon and thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Dave. Thank you, Luke. Talk again. Thank you. No worries. Nice meeting you. Another Podcasts West production.